Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the February episode of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we're joined by Kate Allen and Laura Fitzharris discussing strength training of the inspiratory muscles and Wendy Pearson talking about the effect of transport and exercise on gastrointestinal permeability. Kate Allen is a senior lecturer in equine sports medicine at the University of Bristol and Laura Fitzharris is an equine sport medicine specialist at Bell Equine. They'll be discussing their paper titled Training the Equine Respiratory Muscles, Inspiratory Muscle Strength. This formed part of Laura's PhD sponsored by the HBLB. Laura and Kate, thank you very much for joining us on the EVJ podcast today. We're here to talk about um, one of your papers out in EVJ at the moment. It was a study looking at the response of the equine respiratory muscles to training and to the application of inspiratory muscle strength testing using a bespoke equine mask. Um, So you carried this out using national hunt racehorses in a two-phase study. Can I start, um, based on your introduction, by asking you to discuss the use of inspiratory muscle training in human athletes to improve their performance um, and reduce inspiratory muscle fatigue? Can you tell us a little bit about this practice and how it compares to what you've been doing in Edwards? Yeah, sure. So we actually um, started thinking about inspiratory muscle training in horses several years ago. And initially, we were thinking about it as a non-surgical option for horses with palatal dysfunction because we knew the success rates of surgical treatments had their limitations. And equally, they potentially weren't addressing the underlying aspect of muscle weakness. So that's how we first sort of came across inspiratory muscle training, because it was being used in human athletes with vocal cord dysfunction, for example. And as we were sort of investigating its use, and we spent quite a lot of time with leading exercise physiologists who were using it for human athletes, we began to understand that they were also using it quite extensively to optimize athletic performance in varying disciplines. And that relates more to the respiratory pump muscles, and in particular, the diaphragm. So although the diaphragm is highly resistant to fatigue, we know in humans that the diaphragm is susceptible to fatigue, particularly at exercise intensities greater than 80% of VO2 max. And that's been confirmed through several different studies. And one of the consequences of um, diaphragm fatigue during uh, exercise is something called a respiratory muscle fatigue-induced metaboreflex. And what that means is um, when the diaphragm starts to um, fatigue, there is a reflex which leads to vasoconstriction of the blood blood vessels supplying the locomotor muscles. And we think the reason behind this is to redistribute blood flow back to the diaphragm. But the consequence of that is it slows the person down due to reduced limb blood flow. So in human athletes, they use inspiratory muscle training to increase the strength and endurance of those respiratory muscles. 
which in turn delays the onset of respiratory muscle fatigue. Um, and it reduces the sensations of dyspnea and respiratory effort during exercise. So in sporting disciplines in which a person experiences respiratory muscle fatigue, this particular respiratory muscle training can then result in performance improvement through those mechanisms. But our knowledge in horses isn't um, as extensive. There were some great studies published in the early 80s um, in ponies, which show that during exercise, the respiratory muscles take about 15% of cardiac output and about 20% of total oxygen uptake. And, and what they really demonstrated was that the diaphragm was working as hard as the vigorously exercising locomotor muscles. And we also know that there is a vasodilator reserve in the diaphragm that's completely utilized um, during exercise. We do know that the respiratory muscle metaboreflex occurs in dogs and as well as humans. So perhaps it is present in all mammals, but it hasn't been um, investigated in the horse. But if you look through quite a lot of the equine literature, there are several publications where authors propose respiratory muscle fatigue may occur in the horse. But most of the equine respiratory research focused on uh, the structural and functional properties of the lung and airways and actually their lack of response to training. So training has very little effect on breathing frequency or tidal volume or minute ventilation. And al although obviously substantial increases in VO2 max occur with training, these are mainly through cardiovascular and muscle adaptations rather than sort of structural and functional properties of the lungs or the airways. So for a long time, the respiratory system was fairly overlooked in terms of how it would respond to training. Um, and it's really the, only the last decade or so that the human exercise physiologists have been particularly exploring the role of the respiratory muscles in performance limitation. Okay, so what do we know so far about the response of the equine and respiratory muscles to training and to inspiratory muscle strength testing? Um, well, before this study, very little, really. Uh, we had published some early work before this paper, which um, explained the development and validation of the methods that we used. And we'd also collaborated with a group in Dublin, which had used um, inspiratory muscle training in a group of flat horses during detraining. And they had showed that respiratory muscle training maintained respiratory strength during that period of detraining. Um, but as far as we're aware, Laura's work in her PhD was the first to explore the responses of the respiratory muscles to training by measuring muscle size and um, using an index of respiratory strength. So what did this study aim to investigate and what did you hypothesize? So this study was formed of two phases. The aim of the first phase was to compare the spiritual muscle strength of National Hunt racehorses measured at two time points. So firstly, when the horses were unfit, and secondly, after a period of conventional exercise training, when the trainer deemed the horses to be at race fitness. And then the second um, phase of the study, the aim was to measure and compare the inspiratory muscle strength of horses considered to be race fit and also undertaking inspiratory muscle training. And these horses were randomly assigned to either a high load treatment or a low load control group. 
our hypothesis was that there would be an increase in inspiratory muscle strength in response to conventional exercise training with a further increase in response to high load inspiratory muscle training. And then a further objective was to assess the behavioral response during the application of inspiratory muscle training with the hypothesis that the display of a behavioral response would be higher in the horses undergoing high load inspiratory muscle training. Okay, thanks, Laura. So before talking us through the two phases of this study, can you describe the mask used to challenge the inspiratory muscles, um, what it looks like and how it works for us? Yes. So the mask was developed during previous projects that were also funded by the HBLB. The mask is made out of a clear solid plastic, which covers the entire muzzle with a latex rubber forming an airtight seal around the nose. The system is then secured in place using a Velcro strap that's passed behind the horse's ears. And there is a single opening at the bottom of the mask by the nostrils, which allows the attachment of different valves for the application of either inspiratory muscle training or strength testing. So during inspiratory muscle training, a valve is attached that requires the horse to overcome a set pressure during inspiration in order for air to flow through the valve with there being minimal resistance then during expiration. But during the inspiratory strength testing, an electronic valve is attached, which incrementally increases the pressure following a set protocol, which alternates between two minimally loaded breaths and a single loaded breath, the pressure of which incrementally increases throughout the protocol. So the test continues until the horse is unable to open the load, um, despite an inspiratory effort on two occasions or until at least 60 breaths have been completed. The index of inspiratory muscle strength is the highest pressure at which the horse is able to open the valve. And this was the primary outcome measure of interest. And I should probably add at this point that the system was designed to be used at rest and everything was conducted with the horses in their stables. Okay. So uh, as I said before, it's a two-phase study, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. Which you were describing and use the same animals in both phases. Um, So can you describe the first phase, which focused solely on the response of the inspiratory muscles to training? So in the first phase, we recruited horses in July when they were deemed unfit and having not undergone any routine exercise for a minimum of eight weeks before recruitment, so straight after their summer holidays. And then before testing, the horses who were all naive to the inspiratory muscle testing equipment, they underwent two days of acclimatization to both the mask and the testing valve. And then this was based on um, previous repeatability studies that I'd done in my PhD. After this, all of the horses then performed the inspiratory muscle strength test twice, 24 hours apart, and the highest result obtained was noted as the index of inspiratory muscle strength. And then these horses then entered a conventional exercise training program, which was prescribed by the trainer and were then retested 12 weeks later, which is when the trainer deemed that the horses would be at race fitness. Okay. So and then in phase two, you looked at the response of the inspiratory muscles to inspiratory muscle training by challenging the airways. And this was either with a high load or a low load training program. So how did you perform this? So in phase two, all of the horses were deemed to be at race fitness by the trainer. 
the horses were randomly assigned into either a high load treatment or a low load control group. So in the high load group, they undertook an inspiratory muscle training protocol that gradually increased the inspiratory pressure applied by the valve by increments of roughly two and a half centimetres of water every four days. And this is a protocol that we developed previously um, in conjunction with one of the co-authors, Alison McConnell, who is a human exercise physiologist and an expert in the application of inspiratory muscle training in people. And then the low load control group undertook an inspiratory muscle training protocol with a low inspiratory pressure of two and a half centimetres of water during each session. But they also undertook an extra five breaths of a higher load every five days. And the purpose of this was to acclimatise the horses to opening a valve with a higher pressure without having a training effect on the muscles. So for both groups, the inspiratory muscle training involved two sessions of three minutes duration, which was performed back to back with a short break in between. And this was conducted five days a week, um, but was not performed in the 48 hours prior to racing. And the trainer and the yard staff were blinded as to which horses were in each group. So these horses in phase two performed an inspiratory muscle strength test at both the start and the end of the inspiratory muscle training program. And then we compared the results between the two time points, but also between the two groups as well. And you mentioned previously that alongside the training and strength testing, the behavior of each horse was also being closely monitored. So what were you looking for in this respect? So the use of inspiratory muscle training, as with any novel technique, requires careful consideration. And the, access, the assessment of horses' behavior during inspiratory muscle training as an indicator of horse experience of the procedure was deemed crucial to optimize both safety and horse welfare. So the inspiratory muscle training was performed by myself and our research assistant, Alice. And we had a training diary for each horse that we completed at the end of each session, which allowed us to make notes on the behaviours that were displayed during each session. And I should say that for the purpose of this study, the term behaviour is used to describe any purposeful activity exhibited by the horse outside of just standing still and breathing. Um, so, for instance, wiggling the muzzle, snorting or tossing their head are all deemed separate behaviours. Then at the end of the study, we analysed the training diaries to compose an ethogram detailing the different behaviours and also tally the event of the different behaviours. Okay, so how many horses did you manage to include in phase one? And did you see a difference in the inspiratory muscle strength when they were fit in October time compared to 12 weeks previously when they were unfit? So overall, we had 20 horses that performed the inspiratory muscle strength test at time point A in July, and again, 12 weeks later at time point B in October. Um, the result showed that there was a significant increase in the index of inspiratory muscle strength from a median of 22.5 centimetres of water in July up to 26 centimetres of water in October. And this equates to roughly a 15% increase. And during phase two, um, again, how many horses did you manage to include? And did you see differences between those challenged for the high load protocol compared to your control low load protocol? 
So all of the horses that were included in phase one were brought forward to phase two as well. And we recruited an additional 15 horses. And then these horses were randomly assigned into either the high load treatment or the low load control groups. So on initial measurement in October, there was no significant differences between the two groups in any parameter, including age, weight, performance ratings, and index of inspiratory muscle strength. So this indicated that the two groups were equal at the start of the inspiratory muscle training. The two groups then performed the training five days a week for a total of 40 sessions before repeating the inspiratory muscle strength test at time point C in January. So Overall, we had 28 horses complete the Inspiratory Muscle Strength Test. And in the high load group, there was a significant increase in the index of Inspiratory Muscle Strength from a median of 26 up to 34 centimetres of water, which is roughly a 25% increase. Whereas there was no change measured in the low load control group, which recorded a median of 26 centimetres of water on both occasions. Now, these results were significantly different between the two groups um, and the lack of change in the control groups indicates that the increase in inspiratory muscle strength in the treatment group reflects a true increase in inspiratory muscle strength and a training effect of the inspiratory muscle training rather than just a response to ongoing race training or an improved ability to perform the strength test through acclimatization. How did you find the horses coped with the use of the mask and the increasing pressure in the in the high load protocol? So overall, the horses tolerated the system really well, and the majority of training sessions were performed without any behaviours noted. So in the study, there was 1,087 inspiratory muscle training sessions completed, and in 837 of those, no behaviours were displayed. And in the sessions where a behaviour was displayed, for the most part, it was infrequent or intermittent. So overall, the prevalence of these behaviours was really low. Um, We only had two horses where behaviours were displayed, such that the inspiratory muscle training could not be completed in a few of those sessions. So interestingly, we compared the frequency of behaviours between the high load and the low load groups. And actually, there was no significant difference between the two groups, which was interesting and not what we had hypothesised. Okay. So so on finding that the inspiratory muscle strength improved with both training and muscle strength testing, what muscles are actually being affected by this method? You, You did previously talk about the diaphragm but is it solely the diaphragm? Yeah, that's a really good question. So thinking about the mechanics of breathing, obviously the diaphragm is the primary driving force of air into the lungs during inspiration. So it's often considered that um, the diaphragm is one of the key muscles being trained during inspiratory muscle training. And the index of inspiratory muscle strength that we've measured is thought to represent diaphragm strength. But there are obviously a wide range of different muscles involved. And this is something that we looked at investigating in the other part of the study that ran alongside this one using other methods to assess the response of the respiratory muscles to training. And we were looking at ultrasound measurement of muscle thickness in that study. Okay. So that's interesting to bring your your second paper in into this conversation. Did you find any correlations between strength testing and upper airway abnormalities, such as dorsal displacement of the soft palate or palatal instability 
Have any correlations between these been found? So we did a separate investigation whereby horses diagnosed with exercise-induced upper airway collapse during dynamic endoscopy were recruited to undertake high-load inspiratory muscle training for a period of 10 weeks while continuing with conventional exercise training. So in that study, the dynamic endoscopy recordings were attained at the start and the end of the, the spiritual muscle training. And these recordings were then all blindly graded. And we analysed the recordings in two different ways. So firstly, we used an objective grading scheme, looking at each part of the airway individually. And these results indicated that there was a lower grade of focal fold collapse, palatal instability and intermittent dorsal displacement of the soft palate in different horses following inspiratory muscle training. And we also performed pairwise subjective analysis, which suggested a better overall airway function following inspiratory muscle training in some of these horses. Um, But it's not something that we've directly compared upper airway function during exercise and inspiratory muscle strength. Okay. Did your study looking at ultrasonographic measurements of the respiratory muscles, um, did those findings agree with the findings in this paper? Yes. So we conducted the two investigations in parallel um, with the other investigation measuring the size of a range of different respiratory muscles and also some selected locomotor muscles using ultrasound. And again, we were measuring the change in response to both conventional exercise training and inspiratory muscle training. So as we've mentioned before, the diaphragm is the the primary inspiratory muscle and these results showed a significant increase in size from being unfit in July to race fit in October. And then the diaphragm thickness was then either maintained or increased in size from October to January in horses undertaking high load inspiratory muscle training. So these results were consistent with investigations previously conducted in both human subjects and rat models. So it was really interesting to see an increase in both the index of inspiratory muscle strength and diaphragm size in response to both conventional exercise training and high load inspiratory muscle training. So do you have any plans for further investigations or research in this area? Um, I can answer that. Um, So Laura achieved a a lot during her PhD. And another area that she worked on was the use of machine learning on upper airway endoscopy videos. So we've just had that work funded by HBLB for a follow-on PhD project, and that will look at prediction of airway function, functional significance of obstructions and aspects relating to treatment selection. So that's the area that we're currently working on and currently have funding to continue with. We don't currently have funding relating to the inspiratory muscle training, so we need to sort of pursue options for that. But logical next steps would be looking at associations between respiratory muscles and performance, looking at how best to train the respiratory muscles for optimal performance and probably thinking about how to prepare the upper respiratory tract in young thoroughbreds to try to reduce the prevalence of upper airway dysfunction. Which would be a fantastic outcome. Mm. Um, Do you have a take-home message for our listeners? 
I think probably that the muscles of the respiratory tract do play a critical role in athletic performance. Um, and they are the parts of the respiratory tract that um, show the most response to a training stimulus. But at the moment, we know that further work is required to understand how best to optimize that training response. Great. Well, we look forward to see what you have in store for us. Thank you both for taking the time out of your busy days to share this really fascinating research with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Wendy Pearson is an Associate Professor of Equine Physiology in the Department of Animal Biosciences at the University of Guelph, Canada. Wendy joins us to talk about her recent paper titled The Combination of Trailer Transport and Exercise Increases Gastrointestinal Permeability and Markers of Systemic Inflammation in Horses. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your paper that's currently in the early section of the EVJ website. So this study investigates leaky gut syndrome or gastrointestinal hyperpermeability and what can trigger it. So what do we know so far about this disease process? Well, the short answer is we don't know very much. Um, Leaky gut syndrome is characterized in humans and uh, gets really blamed for a lot of clinical disorders, including um, diarrhea or constipation, uh, fatigue, headaches, uh, skin disorders, joint pain, and and systemic inflammation. And these clinical uh, conditions, they accompany this rather aberrant permeability of the selective barrier of the gastrointestinal tract. So this um, impaired barrier function results in leakage of bacteria and some of the luminal toxins into the systemic circulation. And it's thought that this contributes to some of these observed clinical problems. Um, In humans, we know that high-intensity exercise, uh, stress, uh, autoimmune disorders, and and poor nutrition are all thought to increase the risk of developing leaky gut syndrome. But whether the gastrointestinal hyperpermeability results from the risk factor or causes them isn't really very clear. Um, So I think we can agree that knowledge on leaky gut syndrome in humans is incomplete at best, and we know even less about its role in equine health. Uh, To my knowledge, ours is the first study in horses which attempts to develop a physiological picture of the impact of stress on gastrointestinal hyperpermeability in horses. Um, As far as I know, to date, there are no other studies which investigate leaky gut in horses, so our knowledge of this disease process in horses is extremely limited. Okay. Well, my next question was going to be about previous studies. We we already know that transport and exercise are known to be stressors for equids. Um, What have previous studies possibly in other species looked at? Um, to my knowledge, there are there really aren't any other um, studies that look for causative factors of leaky gut in horses. Um, and really, we don't have very much in any other species either, particularly humans. Um, we do know that certain stresses will induce gastrointestinal hyperpermeability in humans and in rodents. But, um, you know, whether these types of stresses have the same impact on horses is currently unknown. Okay, so what did you aim to look at in this study? So what we wanted to do is we we were looking to 
to create a, a model for gastrointestinal hyperpermeability that really emulates what can be reasonably expected to, to happen in the field. So um, given the frequency with which horses undergo this combined transport and exercise, we aimed to evaluate its potential for increasing gastrointestinal hyperpermeability so that we can have a basis to identify and then potentially protect against any downstream adverse effects. And, and what study design did you use in this research? Um, if you could talk us through the design and what population of, of horses you used. Sure. Yeah. So we uh, the study was a uh, was designed as a controlled randomized crossover study. We used eight horses from our research herd here at the University of Guelph. Um, so in terms of the study process, um, essentially the, the key feature of this study was that we wanted to use a tracer. Now the tracer we used was Iohexol for gastrointestinal permeability. So the reason we chose Iohexol is because uh, transcellular and poor pathway transport of Iohexol from the gastrointestinal lumen into the blood is, is essentially 0%. Um, so it will appear in blood via the leak pathway only when tight junctions um, between the luminal cells are compromised. So this is a really good uh, potential tool to be able to quantify permeability of the gastrointestinal tract. So we administered Iohexol to these horses via uh, a nasogastric tube. And after, so all eight horses received this Iohexol. And then four of them underwent a stress challenge, which was a com combination of one hour of trailer transport, followed immediately by 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise. And at the same time, we maintained four uh, sort of pair-matched horses that, that stayed at the research station in stalls and were maintained as unstressed controls. So from all of the horses, we took jugular venous blood samples uh, before Iohexol administration, immediately following transport, and then again, immediately following exercise, and then at one, two, four, and eight hours after exercise cessation. So with the, with the unstressed controls, we just took blood samples at those same time points so that we had those to compare to. Okay, so using your blood samples, which markers did you decide to analyze and how did you carry this out? We analyzed the plasma samples uh, primarily for Iohexol and we used HPLC method for that. Um, and then we also wanted to see if there were some downstream inflammatory markers that may follow an increase in Iohexol, our permeability of the gut to Iohexol. So we were looking for um, serum amyloid A, which we conducted at a commercial laboratory. And this lab uses uh, the Icon serum uh, amyloid A latex agglutination assay. And we also looked in the blood for lipopolysaccharide. Um, intestinal fatty acid binding protein and lipopolysaccharide binding protein. And we also looked for tight junction protein, specifically where we're looking at zonulin. And we looked for zonulin in both blood and fecal samples. So these latter um, assays were all uh, conducted using commercially available ELISA kits. And when looking at the two groups and the main differences between the group that received exercise and transport compared to the control group, what were the main differences found um, between them? 
So our control horses, as expected, didn't show any significant increase in plasma iohexol over the, the sampling duration. Uh, however, our stressed horses did show a significant increase in iohexol appearing in blood. Uh, we saw this increase immediately after the trailer transport, and it was that this increase persisted uh, after exercise, as well as at one and two hours after cessation of exercise. Um, plasma iohexol in the stressed horses was significantly higher than that in the control horses right after exercise, as well as at two and uh, sorry one and two hours after exercise cessation. So overall, the stressed horses also had significantly higher plasma concentration of serum amyloid A um, and LPS at one hour after cessation of exercise. So does this support the findings of um, previous studies, say in humans, and um, does it support that these um, transport and exercise could lead to leaky gut syndrome? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we, we really don't have any studies to compare to um, that, that looked at something similar. Um, now, we do know that iohexol has been used in horses to differentiate between healthy horses and horses that have an infiltrative disease of the large colon. So we do know that iohexol can differentiate between intact and um, aberrantly permeable um, gastrointestinal lumen. Uh, but in terms of how this combined uh, trailer transport and exercise affects leaky gut, this is, to my knowledge, this is the first um, study really to be able to show that. So we don't really have anything to compare to for that. And why in particular did you look at serum amyloid A and LPS after exercise? Um, well, this was a, also a, a little bit of a difficult one because we don't have any equine data that will really guide us in terms of looking at this. But certainly in humans, LPS does increase following exercise. And this is thought to happen because when exercise is initiated and progresses, there's a diversion of blood away from the gastrointestinal tract towards contracting skeletal muscle. So what this does is it causes a transient hypoperfusion of the gut. And this is thought to contribute to the impairment and barrier function, which typically follows um, high-intensity exercise in humans. So with this increase in, in permeability, that allows um, more transport of LPS from the lumen and into systemic circulation. So this certainly does follow what we see in exercising humans. Um, so it certainly does seem to follow that same pattern. Now, serum amyloid A, that one is frequently reported to increase following strenuous exercise. And we do have data in horses to support this also. Um, so this is an acute phase protein, which is produced mainly by the liver in response to acute inflammation or exercise stress. Um, now, whether the increase that we saw in serum amyloid A was in response to the increase in circulating LPS is a bit unclear, but there are some studies in mice which have shown that even a slight increase in circulating LPS contributes to an increase in serum amyloid A. So given that both our um, LPS and serum amyloid A results or increases were significant in the stressed group, I think it's important to remember that both of those variables still remained within their normal reference intervals. So 
the clinical relevance of these results are a bit unclear and really should be evaluated in future studies. Okay. And you mentioned zonulin earlier, the tight junction protein. So this was not found to increase after um, transport and exercise and therefore might not be a major contributor of um, leaky gut syndrome. So what do you think does contribute to gastrointestinal hyperpermeability? Yeah, we were a little bit surprised with our zonulin result, um, but it is possible that that the function of other tight junction proteins may have played a role, and we didn't measure for those, right? So these are things like claudin and ocladin, um, and it's, again, possible that, that the impact was on those tight junction proteins and not on zonulin. Um, of particular interest to me is the potential role of the microbiome in protection of the mucosal barrier function. Uh, we didn't measure any microbiome parameters in this study, but future research should really look to characterize the effect of combined transport and exercise stress on the equine microbiome and determine what effect that may have on uh, gut barrier integrity. Well, that leads nicely on to my next question. Are you conducting any further research in this area? Um, well, we recently finished a trial in which we used this model to test the effect of an uh, aspergillus-based prebiotic on induced gas gastrointestinal hyperpermeability in horses. So this really speaks to potentially the impact on microbiome on, on gastrointestinal hyperpermeability. So we reported um, in that study that this the product completely blocked stress-induced gastrointestinal hyperpermeability, and uh, that manuscript is currently uh, under peer review. Oh, fantastic. Do you have a take-home message for us? Well, I think this study really demonstrates that the, the very common field practice of combining transport with exercise does increase gastrointestinal hyperpermeability and therefore may put horses at risk for inflammatory consequences that are typical of leaky gut syndrome. And these may include poor performance, uh, immune dysfunction, and gastrointestinal inflammation. So horses that are frequently undergoing combined transport and exercise may benefit from some strategies to protect them from these consequences. And the model that we describe in this paper uh, may be useful in evaluating some of those strategies. Could you um, advise on any strategies or tell us where to look for them? Yeah, this one's a little bit tough because, you know, to date, we don't have uh, really any information on what types of, of strategies can reduce induced leaky gut syndrome. So the one that I just mentioned was a prebiotic. Um, now, whether that prebiotic is unique in its ability to protect against gastric uh, gastrointestinal hyperpermeability remains to be seen. But we're really at the very beginnings of, of understanding leaky gut syndrome in horses and how we can uh, protect horses from potentially detrimental uh, effects of it. So we, we don't have a lot of information on that at this point. Okay, well, it's a fascinating area because it's something that will affect everybody with horses, <laughs> whether they're transporting them or exercising them. Um, so I really look forward to reading what further research comes out in this area. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our April episode. 
Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.